Blog Talk Radio. Is Islam a violent ideology or a religion of peace? <clears throat> well, a former Israeli mayor tells us his experience. And what is a phone company doing supporting marriage equality? Credo Mobile's campaign manager tells us how she reaches out and touches a lot of people. It's all here today on Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan. I'm in California. I'm co-hosting with my friend and colleague, Chuck Morrison, Boston, Massachusetts. And as usual, on Tuesdays, we are joined today by our resident theologian, Deacon Michael Wanowitz of Our Lady of Sorrow Catholic Church in uh, Sharon, Massachusetts. We are broadcasting Monday through Friday at 1 p.m. on CyberStation USA Network, the Blog Talk Radio Network, and our radio affiliates. It's February 28th, day before leap year. 2012, and we are pushing the boundaries of radio here. We are listening to voices from all sides of the issues of the day. Uh, We're going to be joined in a a few minutes by our radio affiliates, but in the meantime, let me introduce you to my friend and colleague, Chuck Morris. Hi, Chuck. How are you, Patrick? I'm good. Did um, either one of you two happen to catch the, uh, the Daytona 500 last night? I certainly heard about it on the news. I didn't catch it, no. How about you, Mike? I didn't, just like Chuck, I heard about it and uh, the terrible stuff going on with the crashes, but uh, my word, no, I didn't yeah, see well, it. Well, well, I'm a, um, a a Daytona fan. I, I used to race back in, in, when I was in my 20s, not Daytona cars, uh, sports cars, but uh, I did watch it. I, I, I followed uh, Danica Patrick, uh, which is my major uh, reason to, to watch it, but um, yesterday was just nuts. They're used to. They are supposed to start on Sunday. It rained, so the track was wet. On Monday, they had these big jet dryers out there drying it, and one of the cars doing practice laps ran into one of the jet dryers, which was full of jet fuel, mm-hmm. burned the track. They had to repair the track. The whole thing didn't start until Monday night. They had to drive all night through the night, and <clears throat> the crashes. You know, the, you always have crashes in the Daytona race, but. Um, and, and these were mild, too. Nobody really got hurt, and most of the cars, uh, I think only one car actually got towed. But uh, it cut the field in half. I've just never seen so many drivers get thrown out by uh, accident. I guess it was the track. But anyway, it's, uh, it was kind of exciting to watch it. Hmm. Well, another race coming up, of course, is tonight. We have some uh, Democratic primaries tonight. Patrick, you know, the um, we've talked on this program many times with Jackie Salit about the independence movement, and um, recently I've come to the opinion that it's, it's a left-wing agenda. But putting that aside, <laughs> okay. the, uh, what's going on right now in Michigan is a good example of where, the, where it's not a good idea and it's not right for people who are in one party to vote in another party's primary. And that's apparently what they can do in Michigan. What's happening in Michigan is that Rick Santorum is doing a direct appeal to Democrats asking them to vote for him in the primary. And now we have Michael Moore, who, of course, is a Michigan resident, saying that all of his Democratic friends are planning on voting for Rick Santorum. Now, does anybody really think that Michael Moore and his Democratic friends want Rick Santorum to be the president of the United States? Well, um, you know, uh, of course, M- Michael Moore's family was a Michiganders before there was a Michigan, so they go way back. He's got a lot of friends. But uh, And I happen to agree with you that, that uh, there shouldn't be cross-party voting. Um, 
there's you know there, there's a discussion going on in the progressive and the democratic party about that progressives and democrats feel that um Rick Santorum is the weakest candidate to put up against um right. uh, yeah and that uh that Romney was at one point the adult in the room and still could actually regain that position um on the other hand um the, the chance that Rick Santorum could become president and bring his theocratic uh, destruction to democracy scares the hell out of so many progressives that I don't think they would vote for him. I think the point is, Patrick, that they, they're doing this for the same reason that in Massachusetts in 2000 you had Democrats and independents voting for McCain in the primary, and, and, and including a lot of people I knew, by the way, including my brother, who's <laughs> an ultra-liberal Democrat. Um, because they felt that George Bush was a more viable candidate, and they wanted to stop Bush. Yeah. Now this is this is what it's all about, and it's uh, it, it, it's not right for either side to decide whose party, who get what, you know, who's the nominee of of the other side's party. I agree. Yeah. I completely agree with you, Mike. What do you think of that? Well, I I would concur also, and <clears throat> I think for some people in Massachusetts, and I would include myself in that category. Uh, I am unaffiliated, uh, so-called independent, if you will, and I remain that way in order that at a particular primary when I go to vote, I have that particular freedom to decide which place I'm going to uh, be you know, <clears throat> putting an X in the box for a particular nominee. But uh, that's a different kind of aspect to it because I don't have allegiance to either party. Well, in Massachusetts, the law is that if you're unaffiliated, as is Mike, and by the way, as I am, you can go into a primary and you become a Republican or a Democrat just as you enter the booth. You then vote in that primary, and then as you leave, you sign something and you're once again unaffiliated. Right. I think that's nuts. I do, too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think I don't feel good about it. I don't think that independents should, should be meddling in the party – Either party, you know, I mean, the parties, Democrat and Republican, should be able to choose a nominee based upon the members of that party and their their beliefs, I not agree. based upon this kind of tactical, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, machinations by the opposition to try to bring out a weaker candidate. And that's what's going on in Michigan, and that really is disturbing to me. Well, well Mike, um, because you're an independent, that means that you don't get to vote in the uh, primaries. Does that bother you? Uh, when you say, well, in the primary, for example, in Massachusetts next Tuesday, uh, I will be voting and seeking, uh, you know, the, the clerk will say which ballot right. you wish, Republican, so I do. I do get to vote. Yeah, you do vote you do. in the primary okay. as independent. Yeah. But you have to choose a party, and I'll be doing the same thing. Uh, you know, it's, uh, a lot of people in the state do it. Well, Chuck, that means that you'll be doing something you don't think is right. Basically, that's the law. <laughs> well, that's the laws in the state. You know, I mean, I I don't really feel comfortable registering as a Republican. Okay, we have to take a break for our uh, radio listeners, and uh, we'll be right back. All right. Radio. 
Radio with Chuck and Patrick, and I want to welcome our radio listeners on 1490 WWPR in Tampa Bay and KSKQFM in Ashland, Oregon. I'm co-hosting today's edition of Fairness Radio from Los Angeles, and I'm co-hosting with Chuck Morse. He's in Boston, Massachusetts, and we are joined, as we always are on Tuesday, by our resident theologian, Deacon Michael Wanowitz, who's also in Massachusetts. We'd love to be joined by you. You can email us, fairnessradio at gmail.com, and you can also call us, 424-675-6806. Well, we've been talking about the uh, the upcoming primary. There's a, a primary election tonight in two states, uh, in Michigan and in Arizona. Um, all the pundits are saying that uh, Governor Romney is sweating bullets over Michigan because if he loses, it's all over. I don't think that's true, frankly. I think that he could stand the loss in Michigan. It'd be embarrassing. But, uh, you know, if you look at the delegate counts, he's got twice as many delegates as Santorum does. Um, and then in uh, Arizona, he, Governor Romney seems to be far ahead. However, he was he was endorsed by the governor of Arizona, Jan Brewer, and as we know that in the uh, in a number of past uh, primary elections that he's been in or caucuses, he was endorsed by the uh, governor and then lost. So we're not quite sure what uh, how good that is. So I don't know. What do you think his chances are in Michigan, Chuck? As I said, I'm worried about this phenomena with Michael Moore and his Democratic friends voting for Santorum. It's obviously a tactic. They obviously think that Mitt Romney is the most formidable challenger to Barack Obama. It's not, I mean, it, it kind of goes without saying. They don't want Rick Santorum to be president. So this kind of machination really, I think, should disturb everyone, uh, Democrats and Republicans. It's not right. I mean, how would you feel if in a, in a Democratic Party uh, Barack Obama was challenged in a primary by, um, you know, some wacky um, Democrat that that uh, nobody liked, and all the Republicans came out and voted in that primary for that. In fact, I think that I, I, in, in the interest of full disclosure, I recall one year in a primary here, I, I took a Democratic vote ballot so I could vote for Lyndon LaRouche. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> I mean, not because I supported him, but because I I want I, you know there was no one running on the Republican side, and I figured why not send the message to the Democrats. All right. Well, well. To be fair, uh, Michael Moore is not behind this. Actually, Rick Santorum is, and Rick Santorum is running television commercials. Oh, yeah. No, it's totally silly. Yeah. Okay. He's trying to get you know. In, in so his television election, everybody's grounded for both. Television commercials say join <clears throat> Republicans and Democrats throughout Michigan in uh, electing uh, Santorum to, to be your uh, your nominee. So that's really yeah. coming out of uh, Santorum's camp there. Clearly. And, of course, the Democratic Party is saying, wait a minute, we have nothing to do with this. We're not urging anybody to vote for anybody in the uh, the Republican primary. So this is really Rick Santorum. Well, I think both things are true, Patrick. And, and Santorum, obviously, like any other candidate, he's scrounging for votes. He's going to do, you know, in the last 48 hours – do whatever it takes, you know, that's when you start throwing the kitchen sink. I mean, that's just part of politics. Yeah. It's certainly legal to do that. I think it should discredit him as a Republican, but that's, you know, that's how politics works. My problem is this idea that this can happen on a state. This is an example of why this shouldn't be. State, you know, you shouldn't have that kind of blurring in, in primaries. Republicans and Democrats should vote for their party nominee, not have this crossover phenomena where people come in and, 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 and manipulate like this. Well, of course, uh, the, the, the solution to that is to change the law, and the yep. way you change the law is you elect people to change the law, and you elect people to change the law 
when you ch- after you change the law. Right? So it's kind of a, a right. difficult thing. We're 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 trying a different tack here in California. We're going to a top two uh, election process in which the top two vote getters in any election, regardless of what party they're from, then go on to uh, a final election between the two of them, which is which uh, gives independents a uh, an opportunity to be involved there and also eliminates the cross-voting that you're talking about. So that, there's another way of doing it. But uh, there's always tactics, as you know, and when you're right. When you get down to the end of it, I ran a presidential primary. You throw everything but the kitchen sink in. If you can, and if you can find a kitchen sink that will vote, you'll, you'll register that and vote it too. Right. So as you well know, you haven't been through it. And, and I guess, Mike, there's really not a moral question here. It's just tactics, right? Right. Okay. Well, um, I, I'm I'm betting that uh, Governor Romney will win in Michigan, and I'm by a very slight margin. And I'm betting that he will win in Arizona by a slightly larger margin. I think that the uh, the curse of the governors is going to end in Arizona, possibly because there's a large Mormon population in Arizona, and possibly because he seems to have been able to get through Arizona without sticking his foot in his mouth. More than a dozen times, uh, and he hasn't yeah. been able to do that. <laughs> yeah, he's very awkward. He always was as governor of Massachusetts. I mean, did when he was governor there, did, did he often say just really dumb things out yeah, of nowhere? Huh. He, he just has an awkward, kind of disjointed way of expressing himself and, and, and a personality. Um, and he would often find himself at, at the end of these malapropisms, as, as it were. <laughs> it's just how he is, and I think you, you get used to that. He doesn't, you know. As the old saying goes, he doesn't mean anything by it. It's just he has a, an odd way of expressing things. Yeah, well, that, that that seems to be the case. I The one that really got me was he's standing in the middle of a Ford plant, and this is a man who r- drives a Mustang, and he says, I love cars. My wife has two Cadillacs. He's standing in the middle of a Ford plant, and he owns a Ford. I mean, well, that's right. I mean, he's sometimes he's he's one of these people that is – Smarter than his own good sometimes, you know. You 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 know your mind is moving fast and you, you say things, and and you you know you sometimes the words are there before you have a chance to calculate what you should and shouldn't say. Yeah, Ted Turner was like that. Yeah, I mean he's a brilliant guy, Mitt Romney, and and he's a very technical mind, very very deep, and and in a sense that can be, you know, that can be at a detriment when you're trying to. You know, be diplomatic, and you're trying to say something here and not there. Uh, he doesn't always he he it doesn't always come across. Well, well, he he is kind of a, a likable guy, and he and he does give the uh, the late night comedians uh, a lot to talk about. Uh, uh, and then uh, Santorum also says a lot of very uh, dumb things, frankly, but he does it on purpose. I mean, this is a man who has three college degrees who's saying that uh, going to college is, is uh, makes you a snobbish elite. Come on. Well, that's what I think our good friend Sam Blumenfeld made the point, that that uh, Santorum, for all of his experience as a senator, and and he is a brilliant guy. I mean, I've I've always liked him on talk radio. Uh, he's, he does a lot of talk radio over the years. But, you know, to get sucked into these sorts of comments and, these, and to get suckered into certain ideas – you know, it, it's not smart, it's not presidential, it's not political. You know, it shows a real sense of amateurism. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Well, we have to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to have the former mayor of Shiloh, Israel, with us. And we're going to talk about um, um, uh, Islamic tsunami. So hold on, you're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick.
Hello? 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 David. David. David Rubin. Uh, Chuck, can you hear me? I'm here, Patrick. Okay. Mike, can you hear me? Yes. And David, can you hear me? Okay. I don't hear him. I he's on the board. I'm not quite sure why. Okay. Uh, Are you up, Patrick? Maybe low. Yeah, no, I, uh, I I'm up. Let me try him again. Here we go. David Rubin. Okay, we'll try him again. Don't go away, gentlemen. <coughs> Hello? 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 I hear you now. Okay, good. All right, let's go. Just a second, I want to bring everybody back in here, and uh, we'll be back. Okay. Okay, we are back. You listen to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick, and you can be part of the program, 424-675-6806 or fairnessradio at gmail.com. Well, there's a debate raging in this country over Islam. Some say it's a militant ideology that uses violence to gain control of countries and people. Others say it's a religion of peace that sheltered Jews when others were persecuting them. This argument is also going on inside of Islam, as many guests on this show have described, between conservative Islamists and moderate Islam, which is comfortable with democracy, women, and other religions. But the debate also goes on in other countries, especially in Israel, where the debate can mean life and death for individuals and for a nation. To tell us about that debate, we have with us Brooklyn-born David Rubin, former mayor of Shiloh, Israel, president of the Israel Children's Fund, and author of a new book, The Islamic Tsunami. David, welcome to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Thank you. Good to be with you. David, this is a very broad book. You you cover the topic from many different aspects and angles, probably a lot more than we can do in 23 minutes. So I wonder, what is the most important thing that our listeners should learn from your book, The Islamic Tsunami? Well, I think that there there obviously are some major points and major themes that I think need to be understood. And the the main one, if I had to pick one theme, it is that there is a very serious conflict and contrast between Judaism and on one hand and 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 Christianity on one hand uh as religions Okay, I'm not talking about how they've always been practiced, but as religious, as as religious ideology, uh, Judaism and Christianity are are diametrically opposed to Islam. Now, uh, you know, it's very interesting. You're talking about radical Muslims and moderate Muslims, and but the 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 real story here is. What is the difference between a religion that believes, as as we do, uh, that that loving your neighbor 
is is the the most important theme. I mean, if I look at Judaism, and in many ways Christianity is not diff- that different, being an outgrowth of Judaism. Uh, love your neighbor as yourself, and and uh, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and honoring your parents. Uh, these are the central themes of Judaism. Uh, in in addition to um, settling the land of Israel. And and the, so those are the central themes in Judaism. If you look at Islam, the 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 major theme is jihad. Uh jihad means holy war against all of the non-believers, meaning non-Muslims. And that that is the central theme in Islam. It's the most important theme in Islam if you look at uh, the school curriculums in countries like Saudi Arabia and and Syria and Libya and and uh, uh, soon to be Egypt and even Egypt as it is today, uh, the, uh, the 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 theme of of jihad of holy war against the non-believers is the central theme. It's the most important uh, obligation incumbent on every Muslim, and and we we see its ramifications. In in our modern times, we see the the manifestation of jihad in the terrorist organizations. I, I have never heard of a terrorist organization called Baptist Jihad, uh, but but there certainly is a terrorist organization called Islamic Jihad, and the Hamas terrorist organization, and the Hezbollah terrorist organization, and the Fatah terrorist organization, and the Al Qaeda terrorist organization. And I could go on and on. The list is quite long, but virtually every terrorist organization in the world is Islamic, and it's because it comes from that rotten root of jihad, uh, which I which I explain in some detail uh, in my book, The Islamic Tsunami. Well, one of the chapters in in your book, and the one one that I I really zeroed in on, uh, is called the Real Face of Islam, and, and you you. You've documented it well. It's it's, uh, uh, it's a good, solid chapter. But so I'd like to ask you, uh, for our listeners who haven't read the book, uh, what is the real face of Islam? And I ask this because one of our contributors, Dr. Uh, Zudi Jasser, who's president of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, exemplifies a moderate, democracy-loving population of Muslims. And he points out that that jihad also means struggle, struggle to become a religious person and is a a, a religious practice, one of the ten practices. And he points out that not all Muslims are Islamists. So what do you mean by the real face of Islam? Well, uh, again, uh, I'm not not doubting that this fellow is is moderate and, and, and that he holds moderate beliefs and, and views. Uh, but, but the fact is that most of the time when we read about jihad, uh, the, it's, it's talking about uh, holy war. It's not talking about uh, some benign form of self-improvement. Um, it's, it's, it's talking about, about struggle, not just with one's own self, but struggle with others. And, and all you have to do is look at the, you know, the... As I say, the proof is in the pudding. All you have to do is look around at all the Islamic organizations, and you see what it's all about. You see what the uh, that the, you know when they say radical Islam, you know pe- people are very wary uh, not to criticize Islam itself because 
if you criticize Islam itself, then uh, then then people will will accuse you and give you all kinds of labels, Islamophobe and a bigot and all kinds of nonsense like that. The fact is that in Islamic sources, uh, they, they they state very clearly uh, that that the the Jews and the Christians are targets. Uh, they, it said it says it very clearly in the in the sources, and you know I could start quoting uh, from the from the Quran, um, but the, the the fact is that this this great great religion supposedly uh, did not did not start in the land of Israel like Judaism and Christianity. It started on the on the Arabian Peninsula, mm-hmm. um, and uh, there was a man named Muhammad who claimed to be a prophet. And all the Jews and the Christians on the Arabian Peninsula didn't accept his claims of prophecy. And uh, this was 1,400 years ago, approximately. And and when they rejected his claims of prophecy, he became very angry. And he he claimed to be a direct descendant of Ishmael, the, the wayward son of the biblical figure Abraham, and his maidservant Hagar. And... Uh, you know the 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 fact is that uh, that that Muhammad uh, was not a, a model of any any sort of uh, admiration or shouldn't be. Uh, you know, un, unlike uh, Abraham or Moses, who were who were, who were tremendous symbols of uh, of great characteristics and and modesty, uh, Muhammad was was and of, and of course Jesus. Uh, but 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 Muhammad is is admired throughout the Islamic world and. And revered as as the prophet, and if if, if somebody were, criticizes him in public, automatically his life is threatened, and he's he's blasted. And and uh, what what is what what is um, going on in this in this ideology uh, that there is no tolerance towards those who who disagree with them? And, um, and I and agree mo- with you that that's an affront to the First Amendment and to people's rights. Um, uh, so. We agree on that one, but I was curious that you said that all terrorist organizations are Islamic, and yet we've got the IRA, which just surfaced again. We've got the abortion doctor killers in in America who also firebomb clinics. We have the Army of God in Congo. We have Christian militias in Idaho. We have we have Christian militias in Nigeria. I don't think you can say that all terrorist organizations are Islamic. Well, we don't we don't hear about these people too often, and and usually when there is a an attack. Of any kind, uh, you know, ter- what what would be classified as a terrorist attack, uh, it's usually by an isolated individual. It's not by a, a, by Christian terrorist organizations in most cases. Uh, you know, ev- everyone points to the IRA, but the the, the IRA, uh, you know, has not been ve- very active in recent years. And uh, but 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 the, you know, there was a very real conflict in. In Northern Ireland, and and it was a result of that. Uh, but but at, at no point were, were they dedicated to uh, to attacking and killing those who were who were not Catholics. Um, it, it was it, it was a different kind of uh, a very different kind of organization. It was a, it was a, a conflict between um, you know with, within Ireland, where, whereas in the Islamic world. You have these organizations that uh, that are that that basically are are in favor, and they and they state it very clearly when they speak in Arabic that they're in favor of destroying Judeo-Christian civilization. 
Um, take the Muslim Brotherhood, for example. And Muslim Brotherhood generally is not referred to as a terrorist organization, but it is the ideological uh, uh, base of the of the Hamas terrorist organization. It's the ideological base of of many of the Sunni terrorist organizations, and and the the fact is that the Muslim Brotherhood uh, states very clearly, and I quote from their doctrine, uh, that they support a globalist jihadist process to destroy and eliminate the Western civilization from within. And that, that comes from their basic doctrine. Now, uh, the, throughout the Middle East, in this so-called Arab Spring, uh, the, the Muslim Brotherhood is central. Uh, they're, they're central in the, the revolution, the Islamic revolution in Egypt. They're, 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 they're central in the, in the Islamic revolutions in Libya, in Syria. And this is, this is going on, you know, it's not, it's not a pro-democracy movement. They're, they, they may be asking for free elections because they, they want to gain control, as they've just done in Egypt. But it doesn't mean that it's democracy. It doesn't mean that it's, that it's tolerance in the American sense of the word. It's a it's a very serious problem, and it's central to the core of Islam. It all stems from jihad. And I'm afraid if they get free elections, those will probably be the last free elections you see in those countries. Um, you claim in several chapters in the book but um, uh, that uh, the Obama administration is pro-Muslim and anti-Israeli. But Obama has President Obama has increased troop levels fighting the Taliban. He's killed Osama bin Laden. He has said repeatedly that Israel is our most important ally, including on the floor of the, United, of the U.N. General Assembly. He's strengthened Israel's missile defense system. He's opposed the U.N. vote to create a Palestinian state and was commended by Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu for doing so. What's your evidence uh, that uh, the, President Obama is uh, anti-Israel? Well, first, first of all, we, we need to understand that, that politicians... Uh, that are limited in what they can say and what they can't say. Uh, it's an open secret in Israel that President Obama is very anti-Israel. Um, in fact, you, you mentioned the missile defense uh, system. Despite what uh, what uh, Obama's uh, liberal talking heads might say, uh, the the fact is that that uh, he, he has put in a request for a 20 percent reduction. That is a request to Congress for a 20% reduction uh, in this coming year in the missile defense system cooperation with Israel. At a time when Israel needs that missile defense more than at any time in, a, in its, its life. And, uh, and at a time in which we're cutting our, our uh, defense budget, too. So there's a context here. Oh, true, true. Obviously, um it's uh, definitely a concern, but a 20% cut is quite substantial, uh, uh, specifically uh, in missile defense. Uh, David, I, I don't want to interrupt you again, but I would. I want to make sure that my, my co-host and our other guests have plenty of time to talk with you, so let me introduce you to uh, Chuck Morse. Thank you, Patrick. Thanks for joining us, David. Um, yeah, hi, Chuck. Hi. First of all, you know, there certainly is a, a moderate um, Islamic movement in the United States, and Zudi Jasser should be congratulated for that. And there has been a moderate Islamic stream in history. I think that uh, the Mufti of Rome, Palazzi, is an example of that. And he said that uh, he talks about how the Quran recognizes Israel and that it recognizes mm -hmm. Jerusalem. 
as the as the as the eternal capital of Israel. So there are those who interpret the Quran and they ignore the the violent aspects of it, and they do view uh, jihad as a personal quest. And I think that that's that's always been the case, but that's not the majority, and that's not uh, and as you say, the more normative Islamic belief brings me to the conclusion that Islam should be viewed as more than a religion. It's also a political system. It's a military system. And it's one that seeks a complete conquest of the globe. Uh, and that's what is meant by jihad in the literal sense. And uh, and that's how it's understood by those who we call terrorists and by actually um, the majority of Muslims in the world to varying degrees. So, you know, it needs to be understood that uh, that this is what we're looking at. And when you talk about the doctrines of the Muslim Brotherhood, to me it sounds an awful lot like the communist movement and the Nazi movement, uh, which, of course, were the two uh, socialistic systems that came out of Europe. So we in the Western world are not immune to this idea. You know, we have also had world order movements uh, that have tried to subdue the planet and that have tried to force everyone else to fall under their own fantasy, their own utopian idea of collectivism or whatever. And I think that's why, in a sense, uh, modern Islam or this strain of modern Islam, which is pretty strong, you know, is very similar to the communist and Nazi movements. You know, it's a, they're trying to conquer the world. I think we need to understand that. Uh, well, that's a, those are some interesting points that you make. And um, I just want to say two things, if I could. Uh, Please. First of all, Palazzi, uh, I, I agree, he's to, me, to be commended, and, and he said some very good things. Uh, the problem is that when, when you have someone like Palazzi who comes along and, and speaks positive words about Israel and about Israel's uh, right to the land of Israel and Jerusalem, uh, the media immediately pounces all over him. And why pounces him on him in a positive word, wanting to get him on their shows? Now, why? Why is that? It's because he is so rare in the Islamic world uh, that that everyone suddenly wants to talk to him and 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 find out, hey, a moderate Muslim. We found we found a moderate Muslim that that is not afraid to go public, and that and that is uh, incredibly significant. Uh, no, that's right. So, I mean, so, you're, you're quite right. It is. I think you make the point that unfortunately, Palasi and people like Zudi Jasser, they they and they have a lot of courage to speak up because the Islamic system. It kind of reminds me of the um, you know of a Godfather movie. I mean, it's sort of like uh, La Cosa Nostra, and probably literally, you know, when you speak yeah. up and you criticize the, the mainstream view of of the of the uh, of the Islamic uh, trend. You know, you're really risking your life, and um, you know we we can see that happening with uh, non-Muslim politicians like uh, <laughs> Gert Wilders from the Netherlands, who's going to have to be under God for the rest of his life because there's been a fatwa put out on him because he criticized a, uh, I, I think it was a situation in the Netherlands that involved some radical Muslims, and that he criticized this. So. Uh, you know, it sends, in a sense, the terrorism is quite real, the violent aspect of it. But the subtle aspect of it is also quite real in that we are all fearful. You know, it creates a, a sort of a chilling effect of, uh, of in any way criticizing this political and military system because we're putting our lives at risk. Well, there, there you are making a very important point, uh, and, that, and that is that uh, 
you know, my my book is called the Islamic Tsunami, but there I, I actually refer to two Islamic tsunamis. There's the Islamic tsunami of terrorism, which is designed to frighten us and to intimidate us, so that we'll be afraid to speak out when the second Islamic tsunami becomes evident, and that is the Islamic tsunami of of demographic change, of control of the media and and um, intimidating the media, and the take take over the educational system. Uh, by by the Islamic ideologues, this is happening under people's ve- under our very own eyes in the in the Western world, and we don't even realize it. Um, now, how, they, you know, I, I, I illustrated. I want to talk about the United States. I know that the Muslim Brotherhood yeah. has been active in the United States for probably the the last forty or fifty years, but it's become more so in recent decades. How influential are they at this point in the United I'll States? I'll just give you a few examples. Uh, the, well, the, the Muslim Brotherhood is active. The uh, the Al Qaeda and uh, the Hamas terrorist organizations and the Hezbollah are all active in South and Central America. Uh, the, in um, involvement in the drug trade and in encouraging the drug trade and 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 in in uh, smuggling uh, immigrants into the United States. Uh, there, there are many Muslim immigrants that have been smuggled into the United States, who have been given Islamic surnames, uh, excuse me, Mexican surnames, and and have been brought into the United States uh, al- along with much of the drug trade. Uh, th- th- this was reported to Congress uh, during the Bush administration, and uh, may, may not have been reported that much in the media, but but it, it's a reality. It's been going on for many years. And uh, Chavez of, of Venezuela has been facilitating much of that. Uh, and uh, so that is one one small area. Gentlemen, you need to do a station identification, and we'll keep on going. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. You can be part of this conversation. Email us at fairnessradio at gmail dot com or call us at four two four six seven five sixty eight zero six. We're talking with David Rubin. He's the author of. The Islamic Tsunami. Thank you, gentlemen. Sorry I had to do that. Continue on. I just want to go to one more question, and then then we'll invite Michael Wanowitz in. Uh, And and that is, David, you were the mayor of Shiloh in uh, Shamran, in in Israel. Shiloh, of course, is the ancient capital of Israel. It was the capital during the days of the judges. Um, The uh, Jewish residents of of what we call, in, in conventional terms, the West Bank, seem to have received a large brunt of criticism um, in the world, really. And, I, and, I, and when I say criticism, I include amongst uh, American Jews and even probably some Israeli Jews. What is, what's going on with that? Why is that the case? What is this demonization of Jews who are settling in, in the West Bank? Well, there's always been a demonization from, uh, from the left. You know, there's, there's this... Uh, <laughs> You know, I, I, I would say that um, those who don't have responses don't, and don't have answers prefer to defame people first, and 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 then they'll then afterwards, if they have to, well, they'll, they'll discuss the issues. Uh, the, the 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 people who live in in uh, Judea and Samaria, uh, which has become known as the West Bank in the Western world, even though it's not a historical term of any kind. 
uh, just refers to the west bank of the Jordan River, and the east bank of the Jordan River is in the, the kingdom of Jordan. Uh, but in 1967, uh, 19 years after the reestablishment of the state of Israel, uh, there was a war that has become known as the Six-Day War, and uh, in that in that war, which only took six days, Israel recaptured the its its biblical heartland of Samaria and Judea, and and as well as uh, the Golan Heights and and several other areas. And and the, these are the places that that are most historical in Israel's history. Uh, there's uh, Shiloh or Shiloh, as many Americans would know it as, um, which is which is um, you know where I served as mayor and where I, I still live. Um, there, there, there's uh, Bethel, there's uh, there there's Hebron, uh, <coughs> Bethlehem. These, these these are all historic places in Jewish history and in the history of. Of Judeo-Christian civilization, uh, we're, we're talking about very, very significant historical places that came back into Israel's hand, hands as a result of that defensive war in 1967. Uh, so, uh, shortly thereafter, uh, there, with the encouragement of Israel's government, uh, Jews started to come back to, to to these areas and and reestablishing the ancient communities once again. And where it's gotten to the point where after 1967, since 1967, it's it's become a mass movement, and there are now uh, six hundred thousand Jews uh, living in in these areas. Uh, if you include Eastern Jerusalem, uh, that Israel recaptured in the Six Day War, and and it's a it's the fastest the fastest growing population. Uh, in Israel, and the fastest growing population, one, one of the fastest growing populations in the world. I want to go to Mike, but I just want to comment on two things. Firstly, that uh, the British actually forced out and evacuated the ancient Jewish community of Hebron in 1929. And, um, you know, so it's not like it's... It, and the other the other misconception is that somehow the Jews are illegally stealing land from, you know, from the non-Jewish Arabs, which is untrue. It's uh, it's land that's either common land that's not owned by anyone, or it's land that's purchased. No one's stealing anything. Uh, Mike, you have a Mike? comment on this? Well, uh, just listening to this uh, very good conversation, especially David's remarks as he began by contrasting uh, Judaic religion, if you will, to use the term, and then Christianity, Catholicism, based upon Scripture and based upon looking at figures like Abraham and Moses and Jesus and others. Uh, for example, as Christians now have just begun the solemn Lenten season, which leads to Holy Week and the Passion account of Jesus being arrested and eventually crucified, when some of his followers, according to the Scriptures, were in sense that he was being led to trial, uh, took out their swords, and Jesus said, put the swords away. Uh, it's a peaceful accommodation. He said, if I wanted to defend myself, I could, but it is the way it is. And I think that's a remarkable contrast, uh, thinking about Abraham and Moses and Jesus. And then uh, David pointed out that Muhammad... Uh, 
it's a very different kind of historical figure. And yet, I work in a particular area in the Boston area, David, and we have this Islamic center of New England, uh, mm. and it's been fraught with internal um, <clears throat> kind of difficulties in terms of understanding where Muslims fit into the uh, the local area. Uh, and, you know, there are some situations where there was an imam who uh, was looked at as being extreme. Some people said, no, he was a peaceful man, and now he's been deported. So it's a very complicated situation just to see somebody uh, in the community walking around in a coffee shop and really not quite knowing where the whole thing fits. Let me take a quick well, break again and identify us. Uh, you're listening to Fairness Radio with uh, Chuck and Patrick on the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Cyber Station Radio Network, and our radio affiliates. We're talking with David Rubin, and he is the author of Islamic Tsunami, and we're all. Uh, he's also the former mayor of Shiloh, um, Israel, and the president of the Israel Children's Fund. And uh, David, I, I wanted to, um, to to ask you a question, follow up on on what Chuck said. Um, there is a obviously a, a debate between Palestinians and, and Israelis over the, the West Bank, and uh, the Palestinians charge that Israelis are are throwing people out of their houses, or they're pressuring them to sell their houses, or they're bulldozing their homes. They're also taking over their farms, etc. Um, what is what is your response to to, to those uh, complaints? Okay. Well, first of all, let me just mention that the. The name of my organization is the Shiloh Israel Children's Fund, Thank you. and it, it was it was established to to help terror victim children uh, in the in the heartland of Israel. And uh, you know, my my three year old son and I were wounded in a terrorist attack uh, some years ago, and and that's how it's in that on that background that the organization was established to help the terror victim children. Uh, so. Uh, Anyhow, so in answer to your question, uh, no, I, I, I mean, I, I would challenge any of those individuals to show me exactly where uh, Israeli communities are pushing them off their land. It's a, it's, it's an absolute falsehood, and it's a, it's a, a very common use today of the the old tried and true Islamic uh, technique of takia. Which, which means lying or deception to further the cause of Islam. And uh, this is something that they use all the time. I mean, I've heard uh, representatives of, of uh, Islamic organizations in the United States who use this technique all the time. When they, when they speak in, in English to an American audience, they, they will talk about peace, and, and how they're, they're just trying to uh, develop a peaceful relationship and a respectful situation with with Israel, with the Jewish community, and and then when they when they speak in Arabic or they speak in their closed meetings or in their mosques, and yes, in America as well, uh, they 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 have a, a sudden slip of the tongue and they talk about how Islam is not in America to be just another religion there in America to be the dominant religion. Uh, they, they state this very clearly. And all, all one has to do is dig a little bit, as I, as I did when I was writing the Islamic Tsunami, to get this information. 
Okay. Uh, Chuck, any comments on that? No, just to, uh, again, I mean, to, to state that, um, you know, the, the state of Israel is not perfect. It's not a utopia, but this whole slander that um, Israelis are, are stealing somebody's land in, in the Judea and Samaria is false. It is, uh, it's just um, it's a complete canard. I mean, they're buying the land, and they're living on areas that are unpopulated, uh, but they're not in any way forcing anyone to go anywhere in in uh, Arab communities. It's just... You know, it, it's a it's a slander. Okay, um, I wanted to uh, to get back some more to uh, your your comments on on the president here. Um, I don't see any wavering in our support for Israel, and in, and in fact, there is tremendous pressure being put on uh, Iran right now by the United States to back off of its uh, of, of what we feel is its. Uh, drive towards a nuclear power. Uh, we've, the president has also said that if Israel wanted to, decided it had to attack Israel, the United States would not interfere. Um, other than a 20% cut in the, uh, the budget for uh, missile defense, which, which, like I said, tracks with the uh, much larger cut in our own defense budget here, we, uh, and also tracks with public opinion, too, which is saying we should pull back our expenditures abroad, I don't see the evidence that... Uh, that President Obama has not been a strong ally of Israel at all. Okay, would you like me to respond to yes, that? Yes, please. Right. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, well, you, you know, it's 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 very interesting when um, when we talk ab about this. You say that uh, President Obama has been uh, very clear that uh, the United States would not get in the way of uh, of Israel if Israel needs to attack. Well. Uh, behind the scenes, there are a lot of discussions going on. Israel has been sending emissaries to the United States to speak uh, in the White House, to speak to in Congress, to speak to the uh, individuals and the officials in the Obama administration. Uh, the Obama administration has been sending individuals uh, to Israel. By the way, Obama himself has not been to Israel one time since elected president. Uh, and I think that also speaks volumes about where he stands. Well, he hasn't um, been to 180 and, other countries either. So, well, he chose that. Look, his first his first uh, foreign policy phone call uh, after being elected was to Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, uh, who has recently joined, um, has, has recently been negotiating uh, the, his unity government with the Hamas terrorist organization. Uh, and uh, has recently been criticizing Israel for the, what he calls the Judaization of Jerusalem. Uh, this is not a, a friend of Israel's. Well, uh, this is who Obama chose to make his first phone call to. Uh, his, his, his first, his, his first, two of his very first visits, foreign policy visits as president, were to Cairo, Egypt. Uh, where he had a major address before the uh, e Egyptian parliament, uh, to to Istanbul, Turkey, uh, where he made very public visits to the mosques there. Um, he he made it very clear when he came into office that that his one of his main goals was to change America's relationship with the Islamic world, and and he he made some very public statements and some very very shocking private statements. He spoke to Charles Bolden, uh, the head of NASA, 
and he, he told him that one of the main goals of NASA is to make individuals and the, the Muslim nations to feel good about their accomplishments in math and science. Uh, a very bizarre statement for a president of the United States to be making. Uh, the, uh, and we could go down a long list. We could look at, uh, at uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's uh, first and second major visits to the United States during uh, the Obama administration's term in office. Uh, and uh, very, um, uh, very rancorous, very tense. And and when um, in, in one of those those meetings, uh, Netanyahu, uh, after a, a, a very unpleasant uh, frank meeting with Obama, uh, was was left in the in a room in the White House in a big empty room uh, with his aides and told that Obama is going to have dinner and uh, um, and if if they have anything to say, they know where to reach him. Uh, very appalling, um, non-respectful relationship with with the country that has been the staunchest ally of the United States, and in fact, in, in UN votes has been um, has been with the United States on 90 plus percent of of the votes, higher than any other country in the in the United Nations. Uh, I mean, I, I could I could go on and on. There, there, there's just uh, an endless list of. Of, of things that the Obama administration has done in private, uh, and the, and the, the statements in private uh, in the past few months have been very very strongly uh, against Israel attacking Iran. Uh, but it's clear that uh, the the Iranian nuclear program is not ending anytime soon. Uh, there is there well, is only a military that? solution saw, uh, because a, a the diplomacy the Joint Chiefs that they have uh, that they've stopped uh, moving towards uh, weaponizing uh, highly enriched uranium. What's your evidence? And I'm not well, denying the, uh, that. I'm just saying I'd the, like to know what you know. Yeah, the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency has has said very clearly um, in the in their reports this year <laughs> that. Uh, that that Iran is moving very clearly and and very decisively towards nuclear weaponry, and and they and they they haven't stopped. Well, certain things have delayed them a bit, and I you know there have been some some mysterious uh, uh, some mysterious killings of nuclear scientists. Uh, there there have been the 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 internet. Uh, uh, the internet the virus. viruses that yeah. that have interfered with with the Iranian nuclear system, uh, all all of these things have slowed down the program, and and sanctions have have had some effect. But but as far as stopping the program, I I really believe that the only thing that is going to stop it is going to be a preemptive strike, and Obama has made it very clear that he's not going to be a part of anything like that, and has been doing everything in his power to stop <coughs> Israel from doing so. Uh, Mike or Chuck, you, uh, we've got a few minutes left. Do you want to uh, weigh in on this? Mike? Um, you know, it's, <clears throat> it's much more complicated for me not being a foreign policy or historian, but, again, just what you see in the surface in terms of uh, Muslims locally here in the Boston area and what other imams across the country are doing uh, and there's a startling contrast between mosque after mosque after mosque. It's 
just my observation. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, I think that Mike, you and I together had a very chilling experience interviewing an imam uh, when when I was doing this program, and in person. And when I brought up the I word, that being Israel, mm-hmm. this look came over him that that I I can only describe as diabolical. And it turned out that this very same imam. Um, one of the members of his mosque fled the country for Syria right after the exposure of Mahena, who was a young uh, Muslim from uh, western suburbs who was caught up in an FBI sting preparing to machine gun the Natick Mall. So, you know, there is an issue here in this country, uh, not with regard to, again, moderate Muslims, but with regard to radical uh, imams and radical clerics who uh, can influence impressionable young people. Yeah, I, I, if I could just throw in here, a, a, you know, a perfect example uh, is the the imam of the Ground Zero Mosque and uh, Islamic Center, uh, the uh, the imam Faisal Abdul Rauf, uh, who who uh, initiated the, the Cordoba Initiative for this center. Uh, it was called the Cordoba Initiative uh, because that that represented the first major conquest of of, of Spain. The building of the of the first major mosque in Spain uh, in the in the earlier Islamic era in Spain, uh, which was built on the on the base of a, a major church that was destroyed in Spain. So that's why it was called the Cordoba Initiative. Obviously, uh, they have certain plans for the United States as well. Uh, he 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 publicized himself and masqueraded as a as a moderate. As someone who just wants peace, but uh, if you dig a little bit, uh, as I did in in the Islamic tsunami, you you see that that the the bottom line is that what they the question is: Do they want to have a violent Islamic revolution, or do they want to have a peaceful Islamic revolution? And uh, I don't think that we want to have either of those in the United States of America. Well, I agree with that. We have a, a couple of minutes. We have an email. Uh, one of our listeners uh, uh, writes us that. Um, uh, that your guest says that uh, President Obama won't support a preemptive strike, but wouldn't he covertly support such a strike? Well, there have been there have been discussions. The 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 head of the Mossad uh, had he came to Washington recently uh, to gauge American reactions if Israel strikes Iran, and uh, the American officials reportedly. Uh, told him very clearly that that they they are not going to support a, an Israeli strike against Iran. Uh, so so th- this is all going on behind the scenes. Uh, th- this particular uh, item was reported in Newsweek, uh, Newsweek Daily Beast, and okay. uh, so so this this is going on behind the scenes. That Obama is not going to publicize it because he's running for re-election, and it doesn't look good for for. The Israel supporters of uh, in the Democratic Party. Well, with that, we are about out of time. Uh, and David, I want to thank you for for staying up late in Israel. You are in Israel right now, and uh, for talking with us, uh, David Rubin. The book is is the Islamic Tsunami. It's available on Amazon.com. It's also available at uh, <laughs> www.islamictsunami. It's uh, very well documented. I don't always agree with everything he has to say, but this is a very well documented book, and I recommend it to our readers. Again, thank you, David, for, for being with us today. Thank you, David. My pleasure. 
Well, that's it for hour one, but don't go away. We're going to be back after uh, after the news with a look at corporate support for marriage equality. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick, and today is Religion Tuesday, so we are joined by Deacon Michael Wanowitz. Stay tuned. You're listening to Fairness Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network and on the Cyber Station USA Network. Although we're not on Cyber Station today, they are wrapping up their uh, their uh, upgrade of their equipment. I actually just got an email from uh, the technician there who said they have one more adapter, one more adapter to plug in, and they'll be ready to go. And unfortunately, they got, they've got to order the adapter online which means it might take a, a day or two before they uh, they get it. But uh, they're working uh, hard on that. And, of course, once they get it, you'll be able to hear us even better than you've ever heard us before. And our favorite producer, Lars Christensen, will be back. Well, I'm uh, I'm Patrick O'Heffernan. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm co-hosting with Chuck Morse. He's in Boston. We are joined by our resident theologian, Deacon Michael Wanowitz. It's February 23rd. 2012, and we are the only radio program in America that routinely listens to voices from all sides. We are pushing the boundaries of radio. We broadcast Monday through Friday from 1 to 3 Eastern on CyberStationUSA.com, BlogTalkRadio.com, and our radio affiliates. We'd love to hear you. Email us at FairnessRadio at gmail.com. You can also call us, 424-675-6806. We also uh, you can keep track of us on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, occasionally we live tw- we live tweet live tweet. Pardon me. And uh, sometimes I'm a live twit. Who knows? Uh, and on Facebook you can always find out what's going on with the show on Facebook. And don't forget our website at fairnessradio.com. Well, we're going to open up for our radio audience in a few minutes. They're in a news break right now. But let me introduce you to my friend and colleague, our co-host Chuck Morse. How are you, Patrick? I'm pretty good, and I I, I did enjoy that um, and and the, the very thoughtful interview. And of yeah. course, being a non being I'm not Jewish, although I've been to Israel, um, I always have to kind of step back and think about what's good for America uh, when I when I have an interview like this. And um, my conclusion is that what's good for America is to, in my in my view understand that Islam is not religion the way we think of religion in this in this country it's it's more a, um, um, a an ideology which incorporates religion into it but it's more than just a religion and that's why Americans have so much trouble with it because we're used to you know religion you go to church on Sunday and it's kind of a private affair and like that but but Islam is not you just go to church on Sunday, it's a private affair. It, it's also political and it's also military. And we have to understand that. And secondly, um, uh, as far as support of Israel is concerned, um, w- 
Israel is our, our, our number one ally in the Middle East, and it's a strong ally for us um, in the United Nations and around the world. Obviously, it's not our only ally, but that um, we do have to maintain very strong support for Israel. But just because the president, uh, whichever president is, doesn't always agree with everything the Israeli government does doesn't mean we're supportive. And I realize that lots of very pro is, is uh, Israel advocates in this country think that we should go along with uh, whatever the Israeli government says 100%, and we don't go along with any of our allies 100%. But I do believe that the Obama administration is very supportive of um, our uh, uh, of Israel. That, uh, and I think that David Rubin has written an excellent book, um, and it's very well documented. You, you cannot uh, challenge him on his facts. Would you? What say you? I'm glad you took you took away a good deal there when, when, when you realize that Islam is more than just a religion. It's not like Methodists, you know, or, or Episcopals. It's a, it is a, a political and militant system. You know, I mean the uh, you know the the whole idea of jihad. And again, we're not innocent in the West because the idea of jihad is the same idea that the communists had when they talked about revolution. You know, an ongoing uh, war whether it be violent and overt or whether it be subversive and working from within like, uh, uh, you know, some uh, communist theoreticians talked about, um, to conquer the world. And and that's exactly what we're looking at. It's not unique to Islam. I just think that that should be pointed out. It just happens to be the manifestation of the world order movement that we're dealing with today, as opposed to maybe in the 1930s and 40s when we were dealing with communism and Nazism. When you say the world order movement, you're talking about is, uh, global Islam. Right. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. This idea right. of subverting the entire planet, uh, either overtly through bloody jihad or covertly through uh, working their way into the institutions and uh, kind of, you know, in a kind of a more creeping way. And in that sense, it is similar to the communist movement and the Nazi movement. I'd add. Well, I want to I want to ask Mike something here, and and this may be a difficult question. Uh, Catholicism is also a global organization, and uh, at one point it it was involved in uh, in war in the in the uh, the Crusades, and there are Catholic missions all over the world trying to convert people to Catholicism, although not with violence. Obviously, it's not a violent uh, organization any longer. But Mike, the what is the difference? And I'm not saying there isn't, but I'm asking you to articulate it. What is the difference between a global church like Catholicism, which is attempting to convert the world, and a global religion like, uh, or global movement like uh, Islam, other than violence. Is there a difference other than the use of violence? Did we lose Mike? I don't know. Mike? <clears throat> Hi, Mike. Did you I hear the question? Uh, no, I just came back on the air because for about four minutes or so I was not hearing anything, so I just dialed back in. Oh, okay, all right, yeah. What, what I was asking you is um, uh, the difference between two global organizations, one the Catholic Church and, and the other Islam, both of them would <coughs> like to convert the world to their belief system. Um, I know there's a difference. I'm not saying there isn't, but I'd love to hear you articulate that difference. Well, I think, first of all, uh, the Roman Catholic Church does not inherently, in my perspective, have as a goal to convert globally the world or everyone to its particular doctrine, its particular faith. 
what the church does is say, this is what we believe, this is what we practice, if you will, and we invite people to consider uh, why we believe what we do. It's not a mandated, let's go out and convert everybody from house to house, that kind of thing, which uh, is maybe symbolic in other faiths. So again, I don't think I... Uh, agree with the idea that the Roman Catholic Church is in a global uh, conversion process. Okay, all right. Well, I stand corrected in, the, in, the, in that case. Um, when uh, I was, can I just chime in briefly? Yeah, please. Certainly history has had exceptions with regards to Christianity, occasionally trying to enforce itself on, on, on non-Christians. I mean, there are examples of it, obviously. Even Judaism has some examples of that. During the Second Commonwealth, John Harkanus tried to force the Idumeans to become Jewish. But, the, but the, those are exceptions, and the doctrine rejects it. If you take a look at the New Testament, it says that people are to come to Christ by their own volition. It's a personal relationship with Christ. It's not something that anybody is, is to be forced to do. And that it separates that from the government, which is supposed to not be involved in forcing anybody to do anything. As opposed to the Quran, which does it's 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 marbled with with declamations that call for world enforcement and 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 for people who are you know are allowed to not be Islamic as long as they accept dhimmi status, which is second class citizenship. Um, you know they're allowed to live another year if they pay extra taxes or something like that. So there is a different ideology and there's a different belief. Okay, uh, that, that's what I wanted to hear articulated because I have heard those those kinds of comparisons that uh, all religions are more or less uh, messianic and all religions are, are more or less um, missionary and they all would like the entire world to believe as they do. And uh, well, well, there is a difference there yeah. also. A lot, uh, Christianity is messianic and missionary, but it's not. It doesn't have a doctrine of force. It has a doctrine of asking people personally to come to Jesus, not to, it doesn't require governments to, in fact, it stays out of governments. Islam, on the other hand, views the government and religion as one. It views Islam as part of the secular order, that it is to be enforced on people. It's a very different thing. It's one thing to missionize. You know, look at you missionize, Patrick, on this program to try to convince people to become progressives. <laughs> I mean, that's just what we all do. We believe we're right. and we, we But it's another matter, if you have as part of your doctrine, to enforce it and to, to actually dominate in, in a literal sense. And that's what Islam does. Yeah. Um, I, I would say that, that there are Christians who uh, would like to be part of government, too. We're currently having that debate in, in the uh, Republican primary now, and I'm sure it will go on. But uh, uh, I want to shift to uh, uh, Israel. Uh, I stated that, uh, and I think I've heard you say this, too, but correct me if I'm wrong, Chuck, that mm -hmm. uh, the American administration, whatever administration, doesn't necessarily agree with every single thing the Israeli government does, and that and that's quite appropriate. The American administration, we get to make our own decisions. We don't get dictated to by Israel or any other country. But there is this kind of shrill criticism that comes out of, uh, out of the, I would call it the Jewish right, or maybe it's just the, the Jewish supporters that say, you didn't do what Netanyahu said, and therefore you're anti-Israel. And, and I reject that. I think I that we're pro-American. I reject mm. your characterization. Mm. I don't think anybody says that the United States always has to agree with Israel. I mean, that's uh, you know, I certainly have have disagreed with Israel vigorously um, on the air. I disagreed with uh, 
Ariel Sharon withdrawing from uh, Gaza. I disagreed with Ehud Barak withdrawing from South Lebanon. A lot of Israel, a lot of American Jews did. So it's not a matter of agreeing or disagreeing with Israel. It, it, there is, I suppose, a line between a sense that the United States might do things that could jeopardize Israel and Israel's uh, in in the um, existential sense. But but to agree with Israeli policy and the Israeli government, that's not ever been an issue. This is one of those things that I hear the left say all the time, and it's just not true. Well, um, I'll have to go back and and get examples. But I think just in this this past interview, he listed a number of of, – of items which to me were, uh, first of all, I'm not quite sure of his facts in some of them, but were non-substantive. The fact that the president did not invite Netanyahu to dinner, but does pay for the missile defense system. I mean, t- to me, those two don't, they're not comparative. We, we, may, we may not, again, there may not be a personal love between, between the two leaders, but our ships are out there, our money is out there, our troops are out there, our diplomats are out there, all supporting Israel. And just because maybe the president doesn't get along with Netanyahu doesn't mean that we're anti-Israeli, but we just heard criticism of the president for that. The president doesn't get along with Putin either, or with a few other world leaders. Well, I mean, if the Russians were here, they might, they might not like that. I don't know. But, Patrick, look, I, mean, I think the issue is more stylistic. There is, he doesn't uh, – you know, every American president, I, I, you know, there's a, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a different approach to Israel that people respond to uh, – political and stylistic cues and uh, it's very different than past presidents and yeah. a lot of israel a lot of american jews including a lot of very liberal american jews are, are pretty disenchanted i mean uh, this coming election uh, you know the republican candidate could peel off a, a couple of percentages of jewish votes that, that's possible we have to peel off uh, for our station identification and our uh, our our audience our radio audience so let me just say you're listening to fairness radio with chuck and patrick you're listening on the blog talk radio network and uh cyber station usa and i want to welcome our listeners from 1490 wwpr in tampa bay bradenton florida the home of this year of the republican national convention and kskq fm in ashland oregon the home of a great shakespeare festival i think the best one in the country I'm Patrick O'Heffernan, co-hosting with Chuck Morris. I'm in L.A. He's in Boston. We're joined by Michael Wanowitz, also in Boston. We'd love to be joined by you, fairnessradio at gmail.com. And after the show, don't forget to check out our website, fairnessradio.com. We have about one uh, one minute before uh, we're going to bring in our new guests, so I should uh, maybe we're going to switch topics here, and uh, we're going to move from Israel to uh, domestic politics, and that's... Uh, the uh, the issue of uh, same-sex marriage and also corporate involvement with same-sex marriage too. And this is this is uh, going to be an interesting uh, topic, I think, for you, Mike. Uh, also, because we're going to talk to the person who ran one of the corporate campaigns to support same-sex marriage, and particularly in Boston too. Mike, still there? Okay, very good. Sure. <laughs> Just giving you a here. little warning there. So uh, I want everybody to hold on while we get our guest. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> <clears throat> 
Mobile, like you said, is an unabashedly progressive company. We fully support the right of gay and lesbian couples to marry across the U.S., and we work a lot in every state where um, the the right to marry is under attack or where we're fighting for marriage equality. Um, Credo was very involved in the Proposition 8 
fight in California. We're a little less involved now that it is up to the courts. There's less advocacy that we can do with our members now that it's in the courts, but we're certainly following following the case and at any opportunity where we can use the pressure of our 2.6 million members to help push along the case for marriage equality, we certainly get involved. So you reached out to your 2.6 million members, subscribers, who, who carry around Credo phones, and I have and full disclosure, I'm one of them, um, and you asked them to donate money, to write their members of Congress, do other things. Is that true? Yeah, we are our customers every every year we donate a, a large portion of our profits to um nonprofit organizations who do work in the space of advancing uh gay and lesbian equality. And so we, we donate money to groups that are doing tremendous work on the legal front fighting these cases and we also ask our members to sign petitions, to call their representatives and to basically do everything they can in order to stop this. Do you know of any other companies, either um, uh, right or left, progressive or conservative, that are, are as activist as Credo is? <clears throat> you know, we we do an incredible amount of activism. We, our company Credo Mobile, has an action arm, Credo Action, and we do an immense amount of political work um, along every the entire spectrum of progressive issues. Um, I would definitely say that we're a leader in that space of corporate organizations doing activism. Is, is uh, Credo Mobile and your parent company Working Asset, is it a private corporation or is it on the stock market? It is, um, you know, I <laughs> I actually am not sure. I believe that we are on the stock market, but since I'm on the political team, I actually don't have as much involvement with the, you know, the corporation side of things. Okay, all right. Uh, can, can you tell us, uh, what you all did in Massachusetts, because the reason we're, we invited you today is that uh, my co-host uh, mentioned that he saw some activity by a phone company, and I just wonder what it is you did in Massachusetts. Um, in, in Massachusetts, you know, I I wasn't here at Credo during the the fight for marriage equality in Massachusetts. Um, but, you know, we, we've done a lot in New Hampshire and Maryland, um, both uh, in the, the legislative fights for marriage equality. We had all of, our, all of our members in the state of Maryland just, you know, a couple weeks ago call their senators and state um, delegates and ask them and plead with them to vote to approve marriage equality because it's an issue that our members – you know, we have lots of gay and straight members on our list that all of them care about deeply. Uh, Chuck and Mike, uh, do you have some questions? Sure, Patrick. Thanks for joining us. Ali, I just want to understand um, where, where you're coming from. Are you here as a representative of Credo Mobile or of GLAD? <laughs> I'm here as a representative of Credo Mobile. Oh, okay, because the issue, I have no issue with Credo Mobile. The issue that came up in Massachusetts was that the organization GLAD, which is um, Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, the head of that group, Jared Barrios, who was a former uh, state senator, and uh, wrote a letter to the FCC asking, supporting the merger of AT&T and, um, and T-Mobile and um, asking the members of his organization to lobby 
for this to happen. And and the only issue with it that came up in Massachusetts was what is a nonprofit organization that's supposed to be representing gay rights getting involved in lobbying um, for this corporate merger, and doesn't that bring into question their nonprofit status, and is there any proprietary aspect to it? And what, what emerged from the research was that uh, that I think it was AT&T has significantly underwritten the costs of GLAD with large um, uh, with large corporate donations. Um, so the the only issue, I mean, the only thing that came up in Massachusetts, and it wasn't a big <coughs> scandal, it was just a, a minor issue bubbling up on the surface, was that there was some kind of a conflict of interest between a private organization that's supported by grants from the corporation lobbying on behalf of that corporation while they maintain their nonprofit status. Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm i not an attorney, and I, I can't really speak to the implications of that legally. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we as a corporation, Credo has, like I said, an unabashedly progressive stance, and our members, the people who choose to buy our cell phones and use you know, our our services are all unabashedly progressive as well. They completely support our our stance, and they're behind us 100% in the advocacy that we're doing in states, you, you know, fighting for marriage equality, like I said, New Hampshire and Maryland. Well, that's absolutely you're right. I'm just, the issue I have is that your organization, is Credo a subsidiary <laughs> of AT&T, or is it a subsidiary of uh, T-Mobile? No, we, we are not, um, we're, we're not a subsidiary of, T-Mobile or AT&T, we um, rent space um, on, you know, from telephone lines from Sprint. Okay. So I don't know why there's a connection between Credo and this merger between AT&T and T-Mobile and why Jared Barrios, who's a pretty savvy politician uh, and is now the head of GLAD, why he would send this letter to uh, the FCC and also to all of his members asking them to support this merger. Do you have any idea why that is? No, I you know, I I have absolutely no idea why he may have decided to do that or not to do that. Okay. I mean, that's that's the only issue I have. I mean, that's why uh, yeah. the issue came up. It just doesn't look it, it looks like it, and and this is not a political thing. I think everybody felt this way that it it looked like there was impropriety. Why would it be this nonprofit group is poking its nose into a corporate matter and starting to lobby? For a, a um, you know a strictly a business issue. Mhm. Yeah, well, I, I completely understand that. Yeah, Patrick. Uh, let me well let me ask uh, Mike um, uh, uh, for uh, Ali's uh, information. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, on Religion Tuesday, we have with us uh, our resident theologian, Deacon Michael Wanowitz uh, from Roman Catholic Church. And uh, I just wonder, uh, Mike, uh, do you have any uh, opinions on a private company supporting or even opposing uh, uh, same-sex marriage? Well, a private company uh, or a publicly held company, uh, a group of people who have a point of view with respect to, again, marriage equality, uh, that's the nature of our country that people can support or not support philosophically or theologically or in any way whatsoever. So uh, I I don't know what difficulty there would be in a private, again, or a public company or any group of people saying, I choose this or I choose not this. Uh, 
that's free speech, I guess. Yeah, I don't think that's controversial. Everyone, any private company has the right to support anyone they want, and that any private citizen has a right to object to it. <clears throat> right. It's not a matter of whether they can or cannot do it. Of course, they can do it. Well, I wonder, uh, uh, Ali has has. Uh, there been any kind of pressure put on uh, Credo to back off from the, the campaign that you run? Oh no, not not at all. We, our members, like I said, are entirely supportive of us, and really, a lot of people respect the activism that we do. People understand that we have an agenda as a company, and that's to promote equality. And they understand that we leverage our you know, the profits that we make from our company and also our activism list. We leverage that in order to help meet those political goals that we have set as a company. And and your activism, uh, I, I, I guess, flows from your founder, Michael Gleisnick. Yes, yes. Michael is a fantastic progressive advocate, and he, he stands behind our political goals 100%. He helps us form them. Uh, He's very involved in the political side of things. Which means that, that, that Credo is actually engaged in this campaign and other campaigns, too, because I know that they've been involved in other campaigns over the years, uh, from a position of, um, of principle rather than a position of profit. Yes, ab- absolutely. That's 100% true. We, we have a set of very well-defined principles that we follow as a company, and we... You know, we we do not compromise those, and we fight for what we believe is right. And yet, you're a very profitable company too, aren't you? <laughs> yes, we we have a lot of customers who believe that we are the right choice. If you want to support a progressive phone company, we're we're the only phone company that donates to progressive groups and does progressive political activism. You know, the only thing I'd add to that is that any time a, a private corporation or a public corporation, for that matter, steps out and gets involved in a political issue, whether it be left, right, or center, you know, they're probably, you know, affecting their, their bottom line in a negative way, I mean, because they're going to alienate some people. And so it's not necessarily something they're doing for profit. On the other hand, maybe it could be profitable. I mean, some, or you know, you have companies that cater to a very specific demographic, either whether it be on the left or the right. So there's also... A profitable side to it, not that that's the motivation, but, but but that's not something that's exclusive to this situation. I mean, you could have just as many conservative companies that put their neck out for a conservative cause and also alienate people, or you know, or maybe profit from it. I don't know if Credo actually might have increased their business from this advocacy. Maybe they have, maybe they haven't. I don't know. But what do you think, yeah. Allie? Has this been a boost for you all? Well, we we certainly, you know, we we like to make profits in order to give those profits away to other groups who are doing great work. That's that's the ethos of our company. Um, and so certainly as we do activism and become more well-known, more people realize that we are the progressive home for folks who want to spend their money on their cell phone bill that they would spend anyway. They can spend it with us, and we will donate you know, our our profits to groups, and we will use it to fund our own advocacy. So certainly we're always looking to ensure that people know that we are the progressive phone company in the U.S. Okay, well, I I, I think you're an unusual company. I I don't know of many other companies that uh, come from a place of principle uh, as 
obviously and, and up front, as you all do, I mean, there are companies that, that, that get involved in politics, in and out burgers, very conservative, um, um, for instance, uh, et cetera. But they don't put it out there the way, the way Credo does. And I guess that Chuck's right. You have found uh, an audience of 2.6 million people in the United States who want to see to it that their money is spent by their phone company on things they believe in. And and I recall that uh, I've, I've seen campaigns that point out that some other companies spend spend money on things that their customers don't believe in, but you have to kind of ferret that out. So I, uh, I think you're an unusual company. <laughs> yes, well, we we definitely have a vision for our corporation and principles that we fight for every day, and we make it very well known that we are a progressive corporation. Well, Chuck or Mike, if you have no more if no more questions, we're coming up on a break. Okay. Okay, right. very good. Thanks for joining thank us, you. Allie. Allie, thank you, thank you very much. And again, Allie is the campaign manager with Credo Mobile, and you can check out Credo Mobile at the website. Uh, the website is www.credomobile.com, correct? Yes, it is. Okay. Thank you, Allie. We're going to take a quick you. break, and we'll be right back. And we are back. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick being broadcast on the Blog Talk Radio Network, on CyberStation USA Network, and on our radio affiliates. And I'm Patrick O'Heffernan. I'm hosting today, co-hosting with uh, Chuck Morse. He's in Boston. I'm in Los Angeles. We are joined, as we are always joined on Tuesdays, by uh, the Reverend Mike, um, Deacon Mike Awanowitz of the... uh, uh, Catholic Church in Sharon, Massachusetts. That's Our Lady of Sorrows Catholic Church in Sharon, Massachusetts. And uh, we usually talk about religion on Tuesdays. And, of course, religion has been a major topic in the um, uh, the, the campaign. And I, I was, as many Americans, rather surprised uh, at something uh, uh, Rick Santorum said. And I'm going to I'm sure the two of you heard it, but I want to ask you about it anyway. Rick, Rick Santorum was referring to John F. Kennedy's speech during his, can, his, first, his, can, his uh, campaign for president. When he gave a speech, and he pointed out to uh, Americans that uh, by electing a Catholic, they would not be electing a pope. That, as a, that even though he was a Catholic, his allegiance, his presidents would be to the United States of America. And Rick Santorum said two days ago in a um, uh, a, a speech in, in in Michigan that listening to Jack, to uh, President Kennedy say that made him want to throw up. What do you people, the two of you from Massachusetts, think of Rick Santorum saying he wants to throw up over uh, John F. Kennedy? Well, Patrick, I mean, I'll, I'll go first on that. Please. So first of all, our guest just now really didn't answer the question that that we brought her on to answer, uh, which was the business of why was it that 
Glad sent out a letter to uh, the FCC asking, supporting the merger between AT&T and T-Mobile. She kind of dodged it by saying, well, I'm not a lawyer, and I can't answer that. Well, I, I think she probably just doesn't know. I mean, she wasn't involved. Her company was that's not part of that. In, that's why we invited her on the show, to ask about this, this issue. I wouldn't, say, I wouldn't say it's a scandal, but yeah. yeah, she was, I mean, that's fine, but it was just a typical flack. I mean, she couldn't really get into it, even if she did know. But as far as um, Kennedy goes, he didn't mm-hmm. say that he disagreed with Ke- the aspect of Kennedy's speech where, because I heard Rick Santorum talk about this on the O'Reilly Factor last mm-hmm. night. Um, he wasn't, and he was clear in, in the way he articulated it, disagreeing with the aspect of Kennedy's speech where he said that he would not be um, following the dictates of the Pope or the Vatican. He agreed with that. And he said, of course, that's a given. The aspect of the speech that he took issue with was the part of the speech where Kennedy said, I will not be in any way influenced by my faith. It's entirely private that faith has no place in politics. Kennedy went beyond just that simple statement, which would have been probably enough. That's why he was made the speech in Houston in, in October of 1960. But... Um, he went beyond that, and the part of, uh, that, that uh, Santorum objects to is this um, assertion that, that religion should play no role in his own uh, personal policy and, and, and guide him in any way in public life. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I agree with Santorum. The Kennedy comments were, were not, uh, to my agreement, I don't know if it would make me sick, but uh, anyway, that, that's the part of the speech that he objected to. Uh, Mike? Well, I, I think uh, I take a look at statements that uh, people make uh, emotionally. Maybe, you know, Santorum was being uh, just a bit more uh, disagreeable in his remarks, I think, you know, throwing up and so forth. But as Chuck said, too, I think it's very difficult for JFK, who made that particular statement and saying, that he would disassociate, if you will, I'm using different words, his faith from his practice as being the administrator, being the president of the United States. And my perspective is that people who have principles, people who have a faith belief system, people who have a high ground in which they walk, if you will, this is who I am and so forth, that usually is a 24-hour situation that you don't turn on and turn off as to who you are. So if you are a person of faith and you are looking at decisions to make administratively or in a debate process or proposing new legislation, you cannot say that I'm not influenced by who I am and what my faith is. Well, let me just read from Kennedy's speech. Uh, and I'm quoting now, this was a speech given in September 12, 1960, uh, at the Greater Houston Ministerial Association. And he said, quote, But because I'm a Catholic, and no Catholic has ever been elected president, the real issues in this campaign have become obscured, perhaps deliberately, in some quarters less responsive than this. So apparently it's necessary for me to state once again not what kind of church I believe in, for that should be important only to me, but what kind of America I believe in. I believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be Catholic, how to act, no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote, 
where no church or church school is granted any public funds or political preference, and where no man is denied public office merely because his religion differs from the president who might appoint him or the people who might elect him. I believe in America that is officially neither Catholic, Protestant, nor Jewish, where no public official either requests or accepts instructions on public policy from the Pope, the National Council of Churches, or any other ecclesiastical source, where no religious body seeks to impose its will directly or indirectly on the general populace or the public acts of its officials, and where the religious liberty is so indivisible that an act against one church is treated as an act against all. Do you guys disagree with any of no, that? Patrick, not at all. And, and as, as Santorum himself said, well, that part of the speech is absolutely necessary. It was other parts of the speech where he basically said, I will not be in any way guided by my religion. You know, Patrick, that would be like you're, running, you're being a presidential nominee and saying, giving a speech saying, I won't be guided by progressivism. Well, actually, that's not what he said, and I'll quote those parts of the speech. Okay. I do not consider these other quotations binding on my p public acts. Why should they? But let me say with respect to other countries that I am wholly opposed to the state being used by any religious group, Catholic or Protestant, to compel, prohibit, or persecute the free exercise of any other religion. Let me stress again that these are my views. For contrary to common newspaper usage, I am not the Catholic candidate for president. I am the Democratic Party candidate for president who happens to be Catholic. I do not speak for my church on public matters, and the church does not speak to, to, for me. Whatever issue may come to me as president, birth control, divorce, censorship, gambling, or any other subject, I will make my decision in accordance with these views, in accordance with what my conscience tells me to be in the national interest, without regard to outside religious pressures or dictates, and no power or threat of punishment could cause me to decide otherwise. So he well, did. That might be where there was a problem. I mean, Patrick, I was not really prepared to talk about this today, so I have to read the entire speech in its full context. But my understanding is that there was an aspect to the speech, and it certainly is not the, the whole thing, where he said that he would not be in any way influenced by the the, the doctrine of his church. I just read it to you. Well, I mean, that, well, I, I kind of hear that toward the end of the speech, this idea that on issues of moral questions, he's not going to be in any way influenced by the church. Everybody knows, and of course he's right, that no one, no outside authority is going to tell him as president of the United States what to follow. He's going to follow the Constitution of the United States. But, but at the same time, if he is a, uh, a member of a faith, whether it be uh, a Christian faith or whether it be progressivism, you expect him to uh, look to the principles that, that are contained in it in his decision-making, as long as it is within the context of the Constitution. And that is a very different matter than, you know, following the dictates. I mean, a progressive doesn't have to call Kim Il-sung <laughs> or, or, or Castro. Well, well progressives <laughs> believe in neither Kim Il-sung well, nor Castro I mean. nor into the faith. So let's <clears> stay <throat> on the topic you know, here and not drop uh, little insults like that. No, no, no. I know that's not a religion. We don't worship no, anybody. It's a set of beliefs. No, it's not a set yes, of beliefs. it is a set of beliefs. It's a set of beliefs. It's not a religion. That's exactly what he said, Chuck. He said, and I'll read it to you again, whatever issue may come to me as president on birth control, divorce, censorship, gambling, I will make my decision in accordance with these views, in accordance to what my conscience tells me is in the national interest, without regard to outside religious pressure and dictates. No power or threat of punishment could cause me to decide otherwise. 
He Please never stop. said no religion in the public square. No, he was misquoted. Don't, you're interrupting me. He's been misquoted and misconstrued by Mr. Santorum, who has been pillared in the press by this, and rightly so, and had to walk it back in several conservative shows. Mr. Mr. Santorum, I throw up at Mr. Santorum for saying that. He insulted, he insulted one of the greatest presidents here. He misconstrued his words. He misquoted him. And I think that Mr. Santorum really wants to take his faith and jam it down the throats of everybody in this country. And that's why he's having to walk it back, because he's afraid that we now know that, and we won't vote for him. Kennedy never said what Santorum said he said, and I think Santorum should apologize to the Kennedy family right now. I agree with, first of all, I agree with what I heard him say last night on the O'Reilly factor, where he agreed with Kennedy, as do we all, that no outside force, whether it be religious or political, is going to dictate the President of the United States. That was a concern, and it's more than religious, it's a secular concern, too. Uh, that the president would be loyal to the Constitution. But what I also hear in that last sentence of that speech was that I personally will not be swayed by my belief system you know, on, on these numbers of issues. And that is what I think a lot of people found objectionable. I think that's what Santorum found objectionable. And I agree with him on that. I think that I want to have a president, whether he be a Catholic or whether he be a progressive or whether he be a conservative, have a set of principles, and within the context of the Constitution, not because of any outside force, they advocate for those principles, and they run on those principles, and that we know what those principles are. Well, once again, quote, I will make my decision in accordance with these views, in accordance with what my conscience tells me to be in the national interest. That's his principles. Uh, Mike, did you hear him say anything about uh, uh, expelling religion from himself? Well, no. I I think for me, uh, hearing it uh, a few times now as you're quoting it, uh, the phrase, the key phrase for me from uh, uh, President Kennedy was my conscience in the national Mm. interest. Now, if you look back uh, from a point of view of belief and faith in in the Catholic tradition, uh, one's conscience is formed by objective and subjective considerations. And over some period of time, from the time perhaps that uh, President Kennedy was young, was baptized, confirmed, practicing the Catholic faith, he grew up with a set of beliefs. And obviously had a particular conscience And then as a politician being elected to office and pledging to uphold the Constitution, the national interest, uh, that's where the two come together. Uh, But they can't be excluded one from the other. Well, what Santorum said, and I'm now quoting uh, the text from his interview uh, on ABC, is, quote, I don't believe in an America where the separation of church and state is absolute. The idea that church and state can have no influence or involvement, the idea that church can have no influence or involvement on the operation of the state is absolutely antithetical to the objectives and vision of our country. This is the First Amendment. The First Amendment says the free exercise of religion. That means bringing everybody, people of faith and no faith, into the public square. Kennedy, for the first time, articulated the vision saying, no, faith is not allowed in the public square. I will keep it separate. Go on and read the speech. I have nothing to do with faith. I won't consult with people of faith. It's an absolutist doctrine that was born at the time of 1960. He never said that. 
Well, you know, first of all, I, I think that um, Santorum, again, did clarify it last night on the O'Reilly factor where he agreed with the aspect of the speech, which everyone agrees with, that no president of the United States is going to be influenced by any foreign power, whether it be religious or secular, mm -hmm. that they're going to be loyal to the Constitution of the United States. And that's basically what Kennedy went to Houston to, ta to say to that Protestant group, that he would be putting the Constitution first. But the idea that he would not allow his conscience, which he could have said has been influenced by my faith, to not, in a sense, personally dictate his opinion and his policies, that's where I think there's some objection on the part of people and that there is, you know, that we want to have someone in the White House or in a position of leadership who has a, a personal conscience and we want to know what that is. That doesn't mean that they're following someone's dictate outside of the of the of the uh, the Constitution, and it doesn't mean that they're not upholding the Constitution. But he said, "I will I will consult with my conscience, see what's in the national interest. It's his conscience." Well, I guess that the problem there, Patrick, is that he should have mm -hmm. said, "I will consult with my conscience as a Catholic to look at the national interest in the Constitution." Instead of, and there was a sense, and I think it was a sense at the time, Mike, you can correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. that he kind of tossed the Catholic Church under the bus. And, and by doing so, tossed all religions under the bus and said there will be no, one will not look to their personal <coughs> faith when they're in a position of leadership. And he did it because he wanted to get elected. Well, I, I'm not going to presume to tell the president what he should put in his speeches, but uh, Mike, what do you say? Well, again, I, I come back to that idea of conscience formation. And I think, again, as a Catholic and as President Kennedy was a Catholic, we, had, we grew up, he did, and I continue to grow up in the idea that conscience is the highest moral standard in our particular religion. Now, people can come and go, and we can look at canon law, we can look at all kinds of issues, but the highest moral standard in Christianity would be the importance of one's personal conscience formed by the religion and formed by doctrine. And again, to link that to the national interest, I think, is the key that President Kennedy was saying, in my ears anyway, that given his life and his ability to have a formed conscience, which continually gets re-examined perhaps, but in issues to do with the national interest, this is part of the process of making decisions. Absolutely, and I think that was the issue. Well, he didn't have to say, and I'd like to say, I'm not going to tell a president what he has to put in his speech, he or she has to put in his speech. He didn't no have to tell. say that. Uh, well, you just said that he no, should I'm, have, I'm and I'm not him. saying that uh, he should have said anything. It was his speech, and it was a brilliant speech. And it's I'm because of his speech that we now can have a Catholic running for the, the Republican nomination. He actually opened the door for Santorum. And as a result, Santorum says, I want to throw up at your speech. Well, what first, an first of all, no one's telling anybody what to put in their speech. We're commenting on what's in the speech mm -hmm. and criticizing it. I hope that's okay with you, Pat. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and uh, as far as, you know, him, I'm glad he was elected as a Catholic. He, maybe, he might have been better off had he looked to some of the uh, doctrines of his faith. I don't know. I mean, maybe certainly in his personal life. But um, the idea that one would not look to their conscience as it is molded by their faith, 
that is troubling to me, and that was something that I think was done for political expediency. But he didn't say he wouldn't look to his conscience well, he did, molded by his no, he, didn't, he didn't outright say it, but he, he said it in a very political way. I mean, nobody, you know, very rare do you find a politician flat out say anything. But he kind of said, I think, and this is an opinion from what I hear in that speech, that's the, that's the signal he sent. You might even call it a dog whistle. I don't know. But uh, that's what I hear there, and that, that's the part of the speech that I object to, and I think that that's been the credo ever since of, uh, of our secular establishment, that religion and that matters of religious conscience should stay outside. Well, um, uh, fair enough on, on your, your comments on that. I, I do think that, um, matter, that religion should stay out of uh, government, uh, that when religion gets its hands on government, it uses it to, to enforce that religion on people who aren't of that religion. We've had uh, hundreds of years of that, those kinds of conflicts, which is why we have the First Amendment, which is why this country has been free of violent religious conflict over its 300 years, because the Founding Fathers were smart enough to realize that if you keep religion and politics separate, you don't give religious leaders who actually have a lust for power uh, the tools of the state to try to ram their their faith down the the, the throats of everybody else. In the I agree with you entirely, and that's a, that's the part of the speech that was correct. You do not allow a formal religion in the personification of a pope or a minister or a rabbi calling you up and saying, you know, this is what the Torah says and this is what you have to do. And Kennedy was very clear and right about that aspect of it. But the aspect of it that I think was somewhat objectionable to many of us was that he went a step further, at least by implication, and said that he personally would not look to the aspect of his conscience that was dictated by his faith. And that is what I think has, uh, that, you know, it is true. Of course you don't want to have a formal you know, religion in, in, in the White House. And he had to say that, and he should have said that. That's not the part of the speech that's controversial, and that's not the part of the speech that Santorum was talking about, as he made clear the other night in his interview with Bill O'Reilly. Well, you're reading something that isn't in the speech, and, and I think the last paragraph of the speech is important. And when Kennedy said, but if, on the other hand, I should win the election, then I shall devote every effort of mind and spirit to fulfilling the oath of the presidency. Practically identical, I might add, to the oath I have taken for 14 years in Congress. Without reservation, I can solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. So help me God. Well, that part of the speech, again, is not controversial. You know, there's a, Mike, there's a, someone, I forget his name, he's a former editor of The Pilot, who wrote oh, a yeah. book. <clears throat> his name is who Philip Lawler. Oh, Phil Lawler. That's right. I interviewed him years ago. He wrote a book about the history of the Boston Archdiocese, who writes a a chapter on Kennedy's speech where he brings up this particular criticism, the one that I'm mentioning and the one that uh, Rick Santorum mentioned. We should try to have him on. Patrick, I'll try to find out where he is. He's very good. He's very articulate. Well, again, I I think you're, you're reading something that isn't there. And, and that you and and all the critics, Mr. Santorum, are making up something that isn't there. We'll see. And I, you know, I realize that's your opinion, but I think that he put that to rest when he said, "I shall devote every effort of mind and spirit." It is spirit, not well, just maybe. his mind. It is spirit too. Maybe I think we need to hear the other side of the argument. Maybe Phil Lawler would be a good person hmm. because it had an effect on religious people and not just Catholics. Um, <clears throat> that, that I think. Uh, 
played into this idea that you seem to articulate, which is that religious views and religious opinions should be banned from decision-making and should be banned from people's advocacy. No, actually, that, that, I think that was the practical effect of it to a certain degree. That's not the only thing, but that's what, uh, that's what uh, again, I want to have someone on here who could articulate okay. this better than me. We should have Phil Lawler on. He'll come on. I, I mean, I've interviewed him before, but he, he gets into this issue and how the influence that that's had. Fair enough. Fair enough. I'm, I'm not advocating that there be no religious opinion or religious speech in the in public square. Obviously, we are we are a Christian culture with a secular government. I want to make sure that the government is secular, and I find that when you have people with strong religious opinions in the government, if you aren't very, very vigilant, they try to enact those opinions in law, and then they cross over into religion being involved in government rather than with opinions. No, and we're seeing this all. in Virginia now. We're seeing this in Alabama now with the so. mandated rape uh, laws. Yeah, but that's the, nothing to do with religion, Patrick. Sure, I mean, certainly it is. It, it, it oh. People may be dictated by the religion, but if you saw religion implemented by government, you would see loyalty oaths to Jesus. That's what, or you'd see Sharia. No, that, that's no, that's no, no, there's no, a lot more. Take a position on abortion, and I knew yeah, you bring this up because it's your favorite topic. No, that's that's that ridiculous. is something that transcends. They may be guided by their religious beliefs, but a lot of people. Uh, like me, for example, are guided by scientific beliefs, and is is the growing science. You know, so those issues, trans, moral issues, transcend any one particular religion. And whatever moral position one has, I want them to advocate that position, especially when they're president. And I want to know what that position is. Well, the line but between to bring, to bring the religion into it, that's that's something we all agree on. You cannot have the pope, or you cannot yeah. have. Minister Farrakhan, or you can't have you know Minister Reverend Wright or anyone else telling a president of the United States what they can do or or to implement literal religious theocratic laws. And I don't want Dobson telling a president what he can do, and, and I don't want Focus on the Family telling a president what he can do. And the line between religion and morals is awfully narrow, and in some people's minds it doesn't exist. And we have a member, we have members of Congress, we have members of state legislatures, we have members of governors who stand up, who quote the Bible, who quote Jesus, and then in, 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 uh, put in legislation that can try to control women's bodies. They put in legislation that demand that the Ten Commandments be set in, in, in front of courthouses. They put in, they put in legislation legislation demands that, uh, that that people pray before before public meetings. They put into legislation uh, requirements that public schools uh, allow preachers to come in and preach. So yeah, I think you're putting up a red herring there. Uh, well, the well, division Patrick, between, just a second, I didn't interrupt you. Don't interrupt me. Uh, I, I think that we really have to look at what the line is between morality and religion. A lot of people use morality as a cover for religion. There is we a have nine seconds in front of left. the Supreme Court, Patrick, in case you haven't noticed. I, I have, yes. Right, right at the, and maybe you might want to have it ripped down. But the idea of, of advocating one's belief system, as long as it's within the Constitution, I want that. I want to know what those belief systems are, and I want to debate them. Well, I... I'm not that enthusiastic about it, but I am enthusiastic about the fact that we have 30 seconds left, so i got to say that's it for today. You've been listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick from Blog Talk Radio. Visit our website at fairnessradio.com. We're going to be back on same time, same station tomorrow. We're going to have another exciting program. We're going to, And so we'd like to see you tomorrow on Blog Talk Radio, Cyber Station USA, and also on our radio affiliates. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Good night.
Radio with Chuck and Ben. Back tomorrow, same time, same channel.